You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to continue working our way through... Uh, this book, and um, I don't know about you, but this has been an incredible encouragement to me over this season uh, to see the early church and um, and to realize, even through 2,000 years of church history, uh, that um, that we are still trying to honestly figure out what church looks like and how to do this best. Um, because although we have an unchanging God, Amen. Our God never changes. And we have a gospel that never changes. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. And his word, as we see that gospel proclaimed to us and we are instructed in how to live as Christians and we see the God of this book, praise God that none of this ever changes. And yet we live in a culture where we have to refigure out how to live out what we see here almost right now, almost on a daily basis. Basis, And so I'm thankful that we can come to this book and be instructed uh, by God in his word, because I see uh, as we move into the days ahead, just the increasing amount of persecution against the church. I know that we've talked about that for years and we've said eventually it's going to be here in America. Well, it's here and uh, it's going to continue to grow as we move into the days ahead, more than likely. And uh, I just think that we as the church need a great deal of encouragement. Um, as we look at the church in this book, we see a resilient kind of force and a mission that has not stopped for 2,000 years. And, and so I hope that you are being encouraged by that. Um, and I just believe that we need to be reminded that now is not the time to quit. Now is the time for us to continue to proclaim the gospel, if not more boldly, for the cause of Christ. And for us to see, and and this is where I hope that you're beginning to see this in this book, that not only are our trials part of the plan of God, and not only does He use them, and, and not only is He actually working in spite of our circumstances, They actually calculate right into his plan perfectly in what he's doing in the world. So what I want to do is, again, take you to several texts where we see the resistance that the early church faced and the response ultimately of the church. Now, last week we saw the story of Saul. So if you weren't here with us, maybe you joined us online, but the story of Saul and how he was converted to Christ. And I cautioned us not to move too quickly from Saul to Paul, but to realize that that God, in fact, in the New Testament, he didn't he didn't take out the resistance and overthrow the resistance in that text as much as he actually rescued the resistance. He saved the very one who is persecuting the church. 
What an incredible encouragement that is to us to pray for our leaders. And that leads us to the second passage that I want us to see. We're skipping over the story, one of my favorites, uh, the story of Peter and Cornelius, the vision that Peter had uh, that was given by God ultimately of Cornelius, the one who was longing for the gospel. And Cornelius actually sends to Peter. Peter goes and he proclaims the gospel to Cornelius. Uh, stood there in the place in Israel where this all took place. Uh, just an amazing thought that God was working out, even in this Gentile, he was working out uh, the plan of the gospel and to hear the gospel message and to be saved. And then we we see that all of these people, as a result of Cornelius's faith, all of these people hear the gospel there uh, in the in Antioch and Caesarea and Joppa and the surrounding areas. And what we begin to see is they were coming to faith in Christ. So verse 19 of chapter 11, before we read our passage this morning, says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Some of them remained at Antioch. And what happened? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Again in verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. And this is what I want you to keep hearing again and again and again as we walk through Acts. This resounding message that despite all of the resistance that we see, God keeps adding to the church daily those who are being saved. So, we come to the story in chapter 12 of Herod. And if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. The Bible says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. And when he saw that it, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel uh, or that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was seeing he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, 
He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came and persuaded Rather, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king of the, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us as we see your word to see truth. God, that you would open our hearts to believe what we see. God, help us to be devoted as the early church was devoted help us to know christ more help us god to see the gospel clearly that you have saved us and that you have called us into this wonderful relationship with you that we can spend time with you in prayer and not only spend time with you in prayer but see you respond and so help us god to understand your word this morning i pray and to be changed by it in jesus name Amen. You can be seated this morning. The power of a praying church. The power of a praying church. Who was this Herod and what was his beef? Why did Herod such, have such a problem with the church? In fact, you can see that it wasn't just a simple, uh, simple frustration or simple annoyance for Herod. It was a hatred in his heart. Verse 1 says that at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is a physical persecution. The Greek there is actually pretty vibrant in its description of laying on violent hands. And the first killing we see recorded 
in verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. What kind of killing is this? It's a beheading. It's not falling on a sword. This is the method of beheading in the New Testament. It says in verse 3, when they... When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. No doubt, the next item on his agenda was the execution of the very one who was leading the charge when it came to Christianity in this New Testament church. Herod hated the church. So who was he? This is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. You'll know of Herod the Great by the Christmas story. Do you remember? Herod the Great, the one who was the great-grandfather, loved and respected in the Herod family, was the very one who ordered the killing of all the firstborn in order that he might take the life of, listen, don't forget this, none other than the King of the Jews. Jesus, the, the child king that was born in Bethlehem. And so this Herod, the grandson, is carrying on the legacy. He's the ruler of all of Judea. His father, Aristobulus, had been executed whenever he was seven years old. He was executed, and then this Herod went on to live in Rome with his mother. He lived there in Rome, grew up underneath the Roman dynasty, had Roman friends, made made good friends with Roman leaders. By A.D. 37, Caligula actually made him uh, a, a ruler over the Transjordan area. And Decapolis, he actually would be given the title king. By A.D. 39, he would receive rulership of Galilee and Perea. And by A.D. 41, he was made ruler of Judea and Samaria and so in all of these territories, he now quite literally was the king of the Jews. But Agrippa was still very unsecure, insecure rather, in his leadership. Do you remember the other one who had borne the title, the king of the Jews? There at his birth, but also on the cross, Jesus had received this title and now the ones who followed him most closely were leading a worldwide movement and leading people to follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Herod was threatened. He would not put up with this. Not only that, he wasn't in the best of relationship with Rome at this point. The one who had made him ruler was not in good relationship with Rome. And so it was kind of always on the edge of would Herod Agrippa I remain king. And so he goes on a crusade. Much like Saul went on a crusade before him, he now picks up where Saul left off, killing Christians, and James is the very first one he executes. And it is not James, just so you're clear, this is not James who wrote the epistle. This is not James who would later uh, lead the church there at Jerusalem. We'll come back to that in Acts chapter 15. This is the James that is James, the brother of John. And James is the one that is executed. So later on in verse 17 in this passage, when James is mentioned, that's James, the brother of Jesus. This is a different James altogether. And so he kills 
James, the brother of John, executes him, beheads him. And then he arrests Peter, likely preparing for the exact same thing. Now, take that and put this in perspective. Peter lived in a world, the church lived in a world where the government did everything they could do to silence the message of Jesus and to stop the gathering of people in his name. This past week, Grace Church, which some of you may be familiar with, um, in Sacramento, California, the pastor is John MacArthur, issued a statement in response to an order from the government there in California that they are not allowed to meet to have church. The church issued a very strong statement. You can go and read it on their website, Grace to You, and you should. It's a very solid biblical stand on gathering in the name of Jesus and worshiping Him even when it's forbidden by the government. And they state within that that article or that write-up that originally they shut down as well because they didn't know the extent of the virus and they had a great concern over the safety of their people and the safety around them. And so it was prudent for them to do and make that action then. But they make no apologies that it was equally as wrong and against God's word for the government to declare that they could no longer meet as a church then as it is now. And now they find themselves in the place where they must make the same stand that Peter made, the same stand that the church made in the first century, the first century in order to go on worshiping. And they have declared their, their position. They've drawn the line in the sand. Some of you might have seen the Supreme Court decision from the state of Nevada. There's a church that has also made the same decision. In the state of Nevada, there is a uh, limitation that only 50 people can gather in a church to worship the Lord. And they're limited to 50 people. And yet, the rest of the, the state and all of the institutions are allowed to be at the 50% mark, which means that if a place is able to hold a thousand people, that 500 can gather in restaurants, movie theaters, in casinos, and so on. It's an inconsistent position because, yes, somewhere in the midst of all of this, there is a political agenda. To silence the church. It is not across the board. But it is present. Our world is beginning to see. The political resistance of the first century. In the 21st century. And it's unsettling. But. It is not. Unexpected. So what happened. Well, Peter gets imprisoned, and before Herod could do anything, the angel lets Peter free, and Herod is confounded, and ultimately, Herod dies, and the church multiplies again. Did you see that? Did you catch the the, the words again? I would just encourage you, go throughout the book of Acts in your Bible, and highlight every time you see this phrase, or something like it. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
every time I see that phrase in different forms, it reminds me that the story of the church and her role in the mission of God is not over and it is ultimately unstoppable. No government order in California, Nevada, the state of Florida, the United States or anywhere else can stop a move of God. The gospel has not been silenced for 2,000 years. And it drives me insane that Christians are running around frantic like what are we going to do and what are we supposed to do now? The Bible makes absolutely clear that our faith and hope is not in the government. Our faith and hope is in God. And yes, the orders of the government change. And yes, our culture changes. But ultimately, our God never changes. And His expectation in our lives is absolutely clear. And we, like Grace Church, shut down because we didn't know the extent of the virus. But the day may come where we have to draw a line in the sand and say, we will meet because it is what God calls us to do. So how do we go about understanding what that looks like? Well, this is the kind of story here in Acts chapter 12 that you tell your kids at night before they go to bed. Peter won. The church saw victory. The suffering was over. The gospel went forward. But the question I have is, where was the church in the midst of all of that story? Was the church signing petitions? Was the church lobbying for laws? Was the church rising up in protest? Not that any of those things are necessarily wrong. But here's what we find the church doing. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's what the church was doing. The church said, you can imprison our leader, but we're going to pray to his. You, you can take the, shep, the, the under shepherd, but we're going to pray to the chief shepherd. Because we know from where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They spent their time in prayer, crying out to God. This was the constant mode of the church As I've said, praying and preaching and praying and preaching. Luke tells us specifically that they were praying for Peter. And immediately, without skipping a beat, the story goes on to say that God answered that prayer specifically. So much so that when Peter finally realizes he's not dreaming, he's got to go back and report to the church what happened. And that's what happens in verse 12. And what were they doing? Still in verse 12, notice it. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They're still praying. The church decided they were going to continue to pray until until they saw something happen. Or until God said, stop. And they just kept praying. Then whenever they hear the knock at the door and they hear the report of Rhoda, 
Verse 14 says that as they were praying, they recognized uh, that, that she recognized Peter, Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, my kids at home often will go answer the door and they'll peep through the blinds and they'll say, Mom, Dad, so-and-so's here. And they'll open the door and they'll run away in joy and ready for them to come in but never open the door. This is what happens to this little servant girl. And they tell her she's out of her mind. It's amazing how often children believe things more quickly than we do as skeptical adults. But God directly answered their prayer. And the immediacy and the specifics of God's response were so clear that they did not even know whether to believe it. Have you ever been at the position that God answers a prayer so specifically or even maybe beyond your your expectations? He completely exceeds your expectations and you don't even know whether to believe that it's true. This is where the church is. And it's because they prayed. Get this truth. Don't miss this. God has, in fact, chosen to act on behalf of his mission in response to the prayers of his people. This is how God has chosen to act. He he has said, I'm going to answer you. If you will simply pray for the mission You pray that people will hear the gospel and be saved. You pray that the church doesn't fail. You pray that the worship of God's people will be hot hearted. You pray that the people of God don't don't fall into sin. You pray for God's people. You pray for the mission. And I, God, your God will answer you. It's a direct and immediate response from God. And it's a call to action From God to us, isn't it? To one, trust in Him. This story should stir your faith. Right? That God does in fact answer prayer. It should stir you. You should go, yeah, I want to pray now because I know my God hears me. And maybe you were praying before, but I want to spend more time in prayer. I want to desperately cry out to God. Why? Because God answers prayer. And it should not only stir your trust in God, but your obedience to God in the call to pray. Let it drive your faithfulness, your devotion to Him. So amidst the world we live in, the the church response is pray, pray, pray and take heart. Because as we pray, God is going to answer on behalf of His mission. He wants us to pray because that's how He's chosen to act. Should you vote? Yes. Should you protest? Maybe. Should you write to your congressman? Maybe. But you should absolutely pray. Because God is calling us to it. And God has said, that's when I'm going to act. In response to your prayer. And it's missional. It's specifically missional. In fact, if you read throughout Acts, and you read most of the New Testament, you will find mostly... Missional praying. You don't find prayers for granddad's toe, though we could pray for that. You don't pray, you don't find prayers that, that, that there's gonna be safety and we pray for that often, we should pray for that. 
But most of the praying, and we should take our cue from this, most of the praying in the New Testament, and certainly in Acts, is praying for the mission. In fact, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, that's where He taught them to begin, is it not? Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, and your will be done. That's what we want first in our lives. So, that's what we pray for. Now, immediately whenever you read this passage, you might be very tempted to say, well, what about James? And I want to put the guardrails up here because we might be tempted to go, well, yes, God answered the prayer when it came to Peter. What about James? Some of you might be tempted to run off into the ditch. Some of you are going to totally ignore James. And run straight to Peter and say, yes, praise God, I'm going to have a victory. I'm going to win. God is going to set me free. There's going to be prosperity in my life. Life is going to be awesome. And then all of a sudden you hit the tragedy. Then all of a sudden you hit the suffering and you go, well, what about Peter, God? Why not me? Some of you are going to just ignore Peter and you haven't got past James yet. Some of you are going to get stuck there and you're going to say, yeah, but what about James? Where was God then? I've got all kind of suffering in my life, Pastor. Who was praying whenever James was executed? Where was the church whenever they cut off his head? These are legitimate questions. But this is where we must ask a better question. Why do God's people suffer And then what is the relationship between suffering and praying? Isn't that a good question? Not a question we should ask? Because we see that all throughout the Bible, right? We've seen it ultimately multiple times now in Acts. What is what does it mean for God's people to suffer? Why do we suffer? And ultimately, what is that relationship to suffering now? My aim to you this morning is not to answer that question from all of Scripture, because there's a lot of answers to that question and some that we should that we should state often. Some very clear, completely true answers to that question. But I want to get to this text and what this text shows us with regards specifically to suffering and prayer. So let's put these three things in tension this morning And answer the question, God and his mission, God's people and their suffering and prayer somewhere in the middle. How do they relate to one another? If that's our call and God's going to act through prayer, how should we understand it? Number one, three answers. Number one, God often drives his people to prayer through suffering. God often drives His people to prayer through suffering. So you might ask the question, what about James? I don't think there's any doubt that the church is grieved over the loss of their leader. But this isn't the first time it's happened, is it? I mean, let's rewind all the way to the very first one. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
Jesus, listen to me, is head of the church. Amen? And Jesus was crucified. In fact, Jesus shed His blood so that people might be saved and so that there might be a church at all. And what happened to His followers? They were absolutely grieved. Then we get to Acts chapter 1. They experienced the loss of Jesus again. And what's the very first thing after they experience the loss of Jesus? What do they do? They go and pray. Then we get to Acts chapter 4. Tragedy again strikes. Acts chapter 7, the loss of Stephen. They've experienced loss again. And what do we find both in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 7? We find the church gathering together in prayer. It's a helpful, gracious thing for God to do. And look throughout the Bible. We see it over and over again. In times of prosperity, what do people, the people of God tend to do? They tend to get self-sufficient. Become self-dependent. Self-directed. Probably the, the greatest story in our minds on this is whenever Moses left the people in Sinai or at Sinai, went to the top of the mountain, and there he's receiving the law, hearing from the Lord, spending time communicating with the Lord. And what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. They're making an idol. You see, whenever times are good, we tend to fall into self-reliance. But every time God comes back and disciplines the people of God and in their discipline, they're driven to prayer. We love quoting Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their sin. Right. It's a call to pray and turn to the Lord. And God is bringing discipline in their lives. Suffering throughout Scripture has a way of driving us to our knees. Some other places that we might think about. Philippians chapter 3. Paul describes experiencing loss. In Philippians chapter 1, you'll see what it was like for him. And he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, listen, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How do we know Him? We spend time with Him in His Word and prayer. And he says that two other times, three times total. In order that I might gain Christ, he says, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. See, suffering drives us to want to know Christ. The Psalms, full of moments where David was being attacked by his enemies. And what did he do? He wrote a psalm, a prayer to the Lord. One specific stands out in that Psalm 119, verses 81 through 84. Listen to what David writes My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Notice verse 82 My eyes long for your promise. I ask. Don't skip over those two words. I ask, when will you comfort me? He gets in the middle of the trial and he's got to go to the Lord and he's crying out to the Lord for help. C.S. Lewis said these words. The problem of pain is the book 
And he writes, pain insists upon being attended to. In other words, you can't ignore it. And he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God in our pain and in our suffering is reminding us that we are to be a people of prayer. I love how John Piper puts it. He says that that prayer or that rather suffering rescues our prayer life. Because we tend to rely on ourselves, but when we get into the midst of suffering, then our prayer life begins to be hot hearted again. To answer the question, I don't know why Peter and not James. I don't know why God would save Peter physically and rescue him from death, but not James. But I do know this, that after God did that and he allowed James to be imprisoned, the church again hit their knees. And it is oftentimes like the days that we're in, facing the times that we're facing, that God drives us to our knees. And on days like this, my hope for you is that we would become a people of prayer. The second answer to that question, what's the relationship between God and His mission, the people and suffering and ultimately prayer? Number two, God often rescues His people from suffering through prayer. You say, is it right for me to pray? If suffering is good, if that's what God's bringing into my life, and He's helping me to be a person of prayer through suffering, is it right for me to pray for rescue from suffering? The early church did, and God answered it, yes. So yes, it is right for you to pray for relief. Now, we must be guarded... Right. We must be guarded that we that we don't replace the God who comforts with the comfort that he provides. In other words, we go on worshiping the Lord exclusively as the only true God instead of worshiping the gift that he gives. There's always a danger for us to worship what God gives rather than the God who gives. Such that when our suffering begins, our worship ceases if we're not careful. And so we pray for relief. Again, we qualify this with the Lord's prayer, his name, his kingdom, his will, his glory. This is what we are after. The contrast between the execution of one faithful man and the salvation of another faithful man is so helpful, isn't it? To keep us in check. It keeps us from becoming outcome oriented in our praying. Where we only worship. If God says yes to what we're asking him for. We want to make deals with him. God, if you, then I. Church had no idea what was going on. They were just simply praying. Oh, God, would you save Peter? Would you intervene? Would you move Herod's heart? God, would you do something about your mission? They're praying. And all the while, Herod was bringing him out. He was ready to bring him out of the jail. And just before, Peter's sleeping. And I love this story. This is just like me. 
you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that uh, that sleeps through a hurricane. In fact, I have slept through a hurricane just so that, you know, and it takes a whole lot to wake me up. It's it's kind of a scary thing. And the angel comes in and I love this. And he just jabs Peter in the side. Get up, Peter. <laughs> it's time to go. Peter, <laughs> what's what's going on? He doesn't even know that what he's seeing is real. He's kind of pinching himself. Am I, have you ever had that experience in life where you just you don't even know whether you're dreaming or awake, right? Peter doesn't know what to do. He gets up. He follows. They walk right past the guards. They didn't run. He didn't put on a disguise. He just simply walks out. The gate that they have to get through, by the way, an iron gate, the text specifically mentions not just gate, the strength of that gate, and it just opens. Have you ever been in a place where God so miraculously rescues that only He can receive credit for what He has done? That there is no explanation for what He's done, and it's such a clear answer to a specific prayer in your life. Now, sometimes, sometimes He chooses not to rescue. But there are times when God does, in fact, rescue often through the prayers of His people. So pray. Third, relationship between God and His mission, God's people and their suffering and prayer. Is number three, that God often establishes justice in response to the prayers of His people. God often establishes justice to the response in response to the prayers of his people. Notice that Herod was angry. And what happens is Herod actually goes about looking for Peter. And then the story just kind of moves on. But it's moving on quickly. And it's as if Luke is directly tying this to the same narrative. As if he's saying, oh yes, Herod's getting away with this. And maybe he got away with the one in, for James. And maybe he'll get away with a few more. But he's not going to get away, for, away with this for long. In fact, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And when he came to them, he rises up, sits on the throne, struts his stuff. And they call him a god and he does not deny it. And right there in that moment, he is eaten by worms and dies. That is frightening and graphic. (laughs) God is absolutely serious about justice. God will make all things right. Amen? And sometimes, sometimes we as His people need only to let vengeance be in His hand. And to pray that justice will be done. And it may not happen immediately. It may be a year, two years, three years. But God often establishes justice in response to the prayers of His people. So pray. Pray when you suffer. Let it be a red flag. A moment that says, now is the time to pray. You've grown lax. Go to your knees. Pray for salvation because God often rescues 
Pray for the salvation of the lost. Pray for the salvation of people in our community. Pray for the healing of people in the church. Pray because God often does rescue through prayer. And pray for justice in our world. It may seem like a frivolous task. Because everywhere you look is more and more and more injustice. But we ought to be a praying people because God's Word says and we believe that God has chosen to act in response to the prayers of His people. How do we know that? The privilege of praying was bought with the very blood of Jesus Christ. The very fact that we can come and communicate with God was bought by Jesus' blood on the cross when He forgave our sin and cleansed our lives. We did not even know God, nor were we in a right relationship with Him. We didn't seek after God, yet Jesus came seeking after us. And the the story of the Gospel is, yes, Jesus has forgiven our sin, and yes, we receive eternal life, but the greatest news of the Gospel is that we have been restored through Christ to God. And you and I get the opportunity To come to Him in prayer today. When Jesus said, it is finished, He said, I have done what is required for My people to be with Me forever. God has chosen to act on behalf of the prayers of His people. I wonder if we believe this. I wonder if we will pray like this. One word of testimony and we will close a year and a half or so ago and um, I'm reminded of this often by one of our deacons because I'm prone to forget this a year and a half or so ago we determined as a church to pray that God would send leaders we went through a season as a church that was tough And most of you, many of you were a part of that. Some of you new to the scene. And God had given us clear missional mandate. And we said we're going to obey that. And it was a tough journey for a while. And we got to the place as a church that we needed people to lead. And by the way, we're still at that place. We need people to rise up and lead and help and serve. But God has, be, has been bringing people to our church. And I don't know if you've noticed this. But people have come, families have come, and have joined our church over the course of the last year and a half who know Jesus, who are ready to serve Jesus, who've been gifted and equipped with the ability to lead. And God has directly, over time, answered the prayers of His people. You just just think about it. And so I think that we're in a new place as a church. We need to continue to pray for leaders. But I think that we're at a new place as a church. And here's what it is. We need to pray, since God has given all of these people to proclaim the Gospel and teach God's Word, we need to pray that God would give us the lost. That God would give us people to be saved. 
There's people all across Walton County. This county is growing faster than most places in the world, in, in the United States. And we have the opportunity to tell them about Christ. I spend my weekends down in a place full of lost people who need Christ. And they are all over this county. What if, what if God began giving us a harvest simply because we prayed? Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to call us to that this morning. These altars are going to be open in a few moments. An opportunity for you to come and pray. Time for you to just say, you know, my heart is broken for the loss, but I've not been doing anything about it. I've not been faithful to witness. And, and I, I'm just going to start today praying that God will bring people into my path and that He would help me to be faithful to witness to them, to tell them about Jesus and what He's done in my life and how He can save them and forgive their sin and their lives can be changed forever. I, I want to pray for that. Pastor, I will join you in this prayer. If that's you in just a few moments, I'm going to encourage you to come to this altar. I know we're social distancing. You can spread out, do what you need to do. But let's pray that God would give us the loss. There may be someone here in this room this morning who's lost or maybe listening in online. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The cross, Jesus died in your place that your sins might be forgiven if you would call upon Jesus in faith. And that is one prayer that Jesus answers without question. He hears the heart's cry of a sinner pleading for salvation. And He saves. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you would cry out to Him today. So in just a few moments, if that's you, I want to encourage you to step out of the place where you're seated. Maybe mention to us online. Send us a message. We'd love to help you as you follow Jesus. But this morning is the time to follow Jesus with your life. So all across the room, let's stand together. Stephanie's going to begin to play and I'm going to pray. You begin to come this morning. Lord, have your way in our hearts. We need you. We need you to give us a heart for the lost, to make us a people of prayer and God, you've promised you'll respond. So we give you our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. You come now this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.